You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Ariok of Elisar, King Shedolaumer of Elam, and King Tidal of Goim waged war against King Bera of Sodom. King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemaber of Zohun, as well as the King of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Shedor Laomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Shador Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim in Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kirathem, and the Herites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of Amalekites as well as Amorites who lived in Hezazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Sidim Valley against the king Shedolarmer of Elam, king Tidal of Goim, king Emraphel of Shinar, and king Ariok of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the Sidim Valley contained many asphalt pits as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, and some fell into the mountains, but the rest, some fell into them, but the rest fell, fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bounded by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. He and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Shedor Laomer and the kings who went with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheva Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed them and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand and an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshgal, and Mamre, they can take their share. Thank you. You may be seated. That was really impressive. Uh, that was, uh, yeah. 
Amazing. So uh, my name is Larry, and uh, I'm preaching today's sermon. And um, as I mentioned, we're going through the sermon series, uh, talking about the life of Abraham. And I'm pretty, ti- I'm pretty proud of the title I came up with. Today's sermon is titled, Abram Goes to Save a Lot. And um, now Abram, he lived about 4,000 years ago, and Save a Lot was founded in 1977. So he actually didn't go to Save a Lot, but he did save his nephew named Lot. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, let's pray, and then we'll uh, dive in, all right? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this chance you've given us to talk about um, your word. And I pray that you would reveal what you intend to reveal to us so that uh, we would receive um, just a, a fuller glimpse of the story of this gospel message. Uh, we pray that you would um, cause our eyes and our hearts to be uh, receptive to hear what you have in store. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, just to recap uh, what's been going on, if you're not familiar with the story of Abram, uh, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, uh, was called by God in chapter 12. He used to live in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq and Iran. And God called him out to go to this land of Canaan. And he promises that Abram will become a great nation and that he will be blessed so that he would be a blessing uh, to the whole world. Um, and then right after that, he goes to Egypt and he, uh, he lies about the identity of his wife. And it's, uh, he demonstrates a lack of faith in God. He brings a curse on Egypt. So instead of a blessing, he brings a, a curse. So that's not a great move. He goes back to Canaan. And then chapter 13, he plays the role of a peacemaker between he and his nephew Lot uh, over where to go. Lot, he says, hey, Lot, we have too many folks uh, between our two parties. They're both pretty wealthy at this point. And he's like, um, why don't you pick a side and then I'll go the other side. And so Lot sees this well-watered lands among the cities and that's where he goes. And then Abram, he picks uh, the other side. And so this demonstrates a tremendous faith in God that he knows that it doesn't matter uh, what is appealing at the surface level. Um, he doesn't matter if Lot chooses the land that seems to be better. He knows that God will provide right? So he trusts in God. That's a great move. So now we're in chapter 14, which at first glance is uh, one of the strangest stories you might come across in the book of Genesis. So first you have this uh, Lord of the Rings type scene, okay, where, where you have these four kings fighting these five kings, and, and, and these four kings, they represent these big empires, and these five kings represent these different city-states. And, and Abram, he joins the battle. It's almost like Gandalf with the the writers of Rohan, right? He comes in and swoops in and he saves the day. And then you have this other strange scene in which Abram meets this mysterious dude named Melchizedek who shows up for two verses and then you never hear of him again, okay? So that's another strange scene. Um, so what does all this mean? What are we supposed to learn about this? Well, let's talk about this one by one. So first, let's talk about the battle, okay? So uh, to give you context, uh, so Abram, remember, he's from Mesopotamia, and these are, this is where a lot of these big empires were, these four kings who are invading Canaan. And what's been going on is, uh, as it was common back in these days, uh, sometimes smaller empires or small cities would be like vassal states to these big empires. And so during this time, a lot of these cities in Canaan, where Abram was living at this time, they were vassals to uh, these these empires, and so they would be giving them tribute and things like that, kind of similar to like the American colonies in the British Empire a long time ago. But anyways, they, uh, they rebelled, so they did this for 12 years, they rebelled, and so obviously these big bad uh, empires, they want to shut down the rebellion, so they, 
So King uh, Ketoleomer, he grabs some of his buddies and they come into Canaan on this military campaign to try to shut down this rebellion. So that's what's going on, right? And, uh, and this is just sort of fuller context in the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, we often see this pattern of big, evil, wicked empires in the east, in the Mesopotamian area, coming into Canaan. You see this here in Genesis 14. You see this later with uh, Assyria and Babylon. They eventually actually conquered the nations of Israel and Judah. Uh, but this is a common theme that you see throughout the Old Testament. And here, anyways, in Genesis 14, these empires, they come and it lists a lot of the different people groups, a lot of the different cities they've already destroyed at this point. Um, it lists, we don't need to go through all the names, but I just want to point out uh, one thing that is kind of interesting in verse 5, it says they defeat the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim. And uh, there's a lot of ancient scholarship, I mean, a lot of scholarship on ancient, ancient Near East about these people groups, but we don't really know a lot about them, but we do know most people in ancient times, they considered these groups to be fearless warrior giants, okay? So uh, they appear a few times in the Old Testament, but these groups, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim, they were like these legendary uh, warrior giants. And so even these guys were defeated by these evil empires, okay? So that's frightening. So they have a lot of power, a lot of military might. And then they have this standoff between these five city-states, including Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll talk about them in a few weeks. Uh, and they win again. And so the city-states, they lose, and then Lot is captured. Okay, so you might be wondering, why is Lot captured? What does Lot have to do with this? Well, uh, we'll read, let's reread uh, a section from last week, Genesis 13, 10 to 13, that explains how Lot ended up in this scenario. Okay, so uh, this is when Abram and Lot, they're divvying up the land. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. So Lot, last chapter, he decided to intentionally live near Sodom. And it makes it very clear, Sodom was an evil place, right? So what, what happened was uh, Lot chose to live in this place because it was filled with abundance. He made this decision to pursue worldly wealth at the risk potentially of spiritual corruption, of spiritual impurity, all right? So that decision, even though you couldn't make that with, with good intentions, that decision came with costly consequences. Lot gets captured along with the rest of the city. Okay, so what happens next? Let's go back to Genesis 14. Let's start from verse 14, read to 16. When Abram heard that his relative, this is Lot, had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So Abram, I mean, most people, you, you might not even realize, but Abram is like a military hero, okay? You might think he's just this old dude, you know, walking a cane, but 
he leads 318 trained men and chases after these four kings. And, and you know, we don't need to dive into the geography, but this is a long military campaign. It's probably over 100 miles, okay? And it's unbelievable. He wins. He's bring back these, he brings back these prisoners, including Lot, as well as, as, as a bunch of loot, okay? So he's wildly successful. No one could have imagined he would have done something like this, all right? And, and this scene, I, I think if you just compare this scene to the second half of chapter 12, there's a total contrast. And in the second half of chapter 12, if you remember, that's when Abram goes down to Egypt. He's also, uh, he feels threatened by these powerful people and he's afraid of his life. And so what he does is, is, is essentially he pimps out his own wife to, sell, to save his own skin. Okay, so that's what he does in Genesis chapter 12. But here in Genesis 14, again, he's, he comes face to face. He has this potential encounter with these very powerful kings. But instead of hiding, instead of lying, instead of you know, trying to play it cool, he decides to take it on himself to go on this rescue mission. He says, I'm going to lay down my life, lead this military campaign to try to save Lot. And he defeats those kings and save those, saves those prisoners. It's an amazing contrast, just the heart change he has, transitioning from a heart of fear to a heart of courage, right? And uh, side note, I think this uh, scene is a beautiful picture of the gospel because we are all like Lot. We all chase after worldly possessions, and along the way, we all dwell in sin. And as a result, we are taken captive. But Jesus is like Aram, and he goes on the rescue mission, and he rescues us. He chases that, sin, that, chases that sin down and sets us free, right? Um, well, let's keep reading. This is where things get interesting. Okay, so verses 17 to 18. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shaveh Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. Okay, so... He comes back from his military campaign. He's probably kind of tired, and he meets two kings. One of them is the king of Sodom. We know Sodom. He was one of these kings who was defeated earlier, okay? Uh, that's the wicked city that we read about also in Genesis 13 where Lot was pitching his tent. And then there's another king, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, this is fascinating for a few reasons, okay? So first off, Salem is the ancient name for Jerusalem, um, later in Joshua 10, there's another king named Adonai Zedek, a very similar name, also the king of Jerusalem, and he gets defeated by Joshua. But here you have this king of Salem, which later becomes the capital of Israel, okay? And, uh, um, and, and is ruled by this Canaanite king named Melchizedek. And you might have guessed, you might have assumed so far in the storyline that all the Canaanites are bad, you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, all these things. But it seems like here, Melchizedek is a genuine God worshiper. He's a Yahweh worshiper. He, wor he worships the same God as Abram. And how do we know that? It says he's the priest to God most high. And uh, let's read verse 19. It says, he blessed him and said, God Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So there's this phrase that he uses to describe God, which is God most high, creator of heaven and earth. 
And interestingly, Abram uses the same phrase a few verses later in verse 22. We'll get there. But it shows that Abram and Melchizedek, they worship the same God. Um, that's fascinating because think about this. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how Abram, he was an idol worshiper. His family, Abram and his family, they were idol worshipers in Mesopotamia. And then uh, Yahweh God, uh, our God, called out to him, right, and, and said, come out of this place, go to the land of Canaan. I'll send you somewhere. And, and, and Abram goes in. And as far as he knows, probably, it's full of wicked people. That's why he's living by himself and not in these cities. But here he comes across King Melchizedek. And it just shows that God has his people everywhere, right? If God has a mission for you and he wants to send you somewhere, he's going to provide community. He's going to provide people. He has his people everywhere. But let's keep going. What, uh, let's talk a little bit about this role that Melchizedek has. He's a king and he's a priest. Hey, you don't see too many of these folks in the Bible. Most people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, they're either kings uh, like Solomon or they're priests like Aaron or something. Like you don't really see people who are both kings and priests. So what does a biblical priest do? Okay, what does, because if you grew up in today's context, uh, context uh, if you go to a Catholic church, you might, you know, have an idea of what a priest does. But for the most part, if you don't go to a, if you go to a Protestant church, for example, we don't really have priests. So what does a priest do in the, especially in the Old Testament? Well, a priest in those days served as a mediator between God and humankind. So uh, a, a priest represents, in a sense, God's presence on earth. Late in the Old Testament, the priest would work in the tabernacle and the temple. So that was the center of God's presence in Israel. And so a priest uh, helps people to worship God accepts sacrifices and offerings on behalf of God and blesses people uh, on behalf of God. So a priest was this mediator between God and humanity. And you don't have to be an Israelite to be a priest, as we, as we clearly see, right? Melchizedek, he's a priest. Later in uh, Exodus, there's a guy named Jethro who's a priest. And so you don't have to be um, an Israelite to be a priest. You just have to be a God worshiper. You have to represent God. And, uh, and so Melchizedek, is functioning like a priest. And uh, in his priestly role, he pronounces a blessing on Abram. And in response, Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything, an offering to God. Okay? And I think this is the proper response of Abram. And I think this is something that we can just take away. When good things happen in our lives, we recognize that God had something to do with it. And then we give as uh, an act of worship to God. Right? I think that's just... That's, that's exactly what Abram does. He realizes he's leading 318 people to defeat these four kings. That's not an accident. He's not just a great military general. God must have had something to do with it. God provided that victory. God uh, kept him alive and rescued Lot. And so out of gratitude for what God did, he gave a tenth of everything that he had. And um, I think that's just a good reminder to us. A lot of the blessings we have in life Actually, all the blessings we have in life are from God. Um, there isn't a single thing that we've done from the day we were born that wasn't a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift is from God, uh, the Father of lights. And so I think a natural response, I think, if, we are, if our heads are on correctly, if we understand who we are, who God is, is we worship. We want to give. And so earlier we talked about giving. So giving isn't just to pay the bills. Giving is just our natural response to, you know, God has given me so much. 
All I have is God's. And so I want to dedicate a portion of what I have back to God. So that's what Abram does in this context. So now contrast uh, Abram's interaction with Melchizedek with Abram's interaction with the kingdom of, uh, sorry, the king of Sodom. Okay, so he is, remember there's two kings. There's Melchizedek, the king of Sodom. Okay, so let's read verse 21 to 24. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. So let's pause here. So remember, Abram just went on this military campaign and he rescued all these prisoners of war and he got all this loot. And typically in those days, uh, the motivation for war was to get a bunch of stuff. Like that's kind of like what pirates do, right? You go fight a bunch of people and you get a bunch of stuff. And uh, people went to war sort of as mercenaries for one another. So the king of Sodom might be assuming, oh, Abraham's just like this mercenary. Okay, he went to fight all these things. He wants a bunch of stuff. And so he's like, I'm just going to make a deal. Thanks for rescuing my people. Can I get my people back? The prisoners of war who were captured. Um, but you did a great job fighting, so you can keep all the stuff. Okay, keep the loot that you captured. Originally, they were my loot because they were in my cities and the king took them away, but you can, you can have the loot as your reward for uh, helping me out, for being my ally. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Remember that's that phrase that Melchizedek used, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. So Abram receives this request from Sodom. He says, hey, can I get my people back? You, te- you keep all the stuff. And Abram says, no, you keep everything. Uh, some of my men, if they want to have some of the loot, you know, that's on them. They can get some of the loot. But for me, I'm not going to take anything from you. Why? Because unlike Lot, Abram values spiritual purity over worldly wealth. Unlike Lot, Abram values spiritual purity over worldly wealth. You see, you remember in Genesis 13, Lot, he saw this worldly wealth in the land uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, I'm going to live over there. And as a result, he was tainted by the evil and uh, he, his whole family was taken as prisoners, right? Abram, on the other hand, he, was, he saw the wickedness of Sodom and he did not want to be associated with it. It's kind of like how, um, you know, many political candidates today uh, when they are raising money for their political campaign, sometimes there may be something on the news like so-and-so donated a lot of money to this political campaign. And they're like, oh, no, I don't want to be associated with that guy. I want to refund this person because this person is a racist or this person is a crony, capitalist, corrupted, whatever. So whatever this person gives me, I don't want to be associated with that person. So I'm going to give the money back. And I think that's what Abram is doing. He's, he's seeing uh, the king of Sodom. He's a wicked guy. A lot of his wealth he probably generated through wicked means. And he's like, I don't want anyone to have this impression that this person made me rich, that this person donated or gave money to me. I don't want to be, I want to be clean from your wickedness. He sees King Melchizedek and he recognizes King Melchizedek, he's a devout worshiper of God. And he's like, I do want to be associated with you. You want to bless me? That's great. I'll gladly receive your blessing. And I want to give to you in return but he sees the king of Sodom ruling the city of wickedness and he's like, I don't want anything from you, right? And I think this is significant because uh, 
You know, earlier we read in Genesis 12 that God wants to make Abram a great nation. And there's been some time that has passed since then, and there's been some developments. But, you're, but Abram, he's probably thinking, you know, one of these days I'm going to be a great nation, and so I'm just going to look for those opportunities to increase my wealth, look for those opportunities to increase my reputation, because I'm going to be a great nation one day, right? Uh, because in order to be a great nation, you need things, right? You, you need kids, first of all, which he doesn't have, and uh, that's, that's coming later. But practically, you also need wealth. You need money. And Abram, he could have seen this opportunity from the king of Sodom where, the, where this king is going, hey, you can have all of this stuff. And Abram could have said, could have thought, you know, if there was ever an opportunity to make a name for myself, this is it. I just defeated these four kings. I just saved basically the whole land of Canaan. And, and these people, they're now indebted to me. And they're offering me all of this stuff. This is my chance. This is my chance to be a great nation. That's what he could have thought. But instead, he says no. He turns the opportunity down because he recognizes that the path to greatness isn't going to come by making deals with the world. But the path to greatness was going to come from God alone. He was going to trust in God's provision alone and not in what the world was going to offer him. Much of Abraham's life comes down to this one question. Are you going to get your blessings by dabbling in sin or are you going to get those blessings by trusting in God? Um, Later we see this also uh, when he's trying to have kids, this whole uh, wrestling in his mind, like, am I going to have kids through sin or am I going to have kids through trusting in God? And here we see the same example. Am I going to accumulate a lot of wealth through sin, through dabbling in sin, or am I going to accumulate a lot of wealth by trusting in God? And I think that's a question that we should all be asking ourselves too. Because here's the thing, you know, we all want blessings. Uh, the whole world wants blessings. We, don't, we might not use that term blessings, but we want, you know, peace. We want stability. We want prosperity. We want love. We want community. We want all those things. And God wants to give us those things as well, but in his own way and in his own timing. And the lesson of Abraham is this, trust in God. Trust that God will provide. Trust that you don't have to obtain these things that you want through your own sinful means or through worldly means, but you can trust that God will provide. Maybe you want to accumulate financial wealth. And it's not bad, of course, to accumulate financial wealth. We see that Abram was a financially wealthy person. But there are many bad ways to accumulate financial wealth. You can do so through illegal activity. You can do so through addictive gambling. You can do so by throwing your coworker under the bus so that you set yourself up well to get a promotion. You can do so uh, by being a workaholic and you don't care about your family, but you're working all the time. You're working all these side gigs all the time. And it can be so tempting to do that, right? To be like Lot, in a sense, to see that Sodom is where the money is at. And that's where I'm going to pitch my tent. But I urge you to be like Abram, to say no when it really matters. To say no to the king of Sodom and trust that God will provide. Maybe you want to, let's say, find a husband or wife. And again, that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing to find a husband or wife. 
But let me tell you, there are many bad ways, sinful ways to try to find a husband or wife. You can do so by settling for someone who would be horrible for you. You can do so by going on dates and pretending to be someone you're not. You can do so by emotionally manipulating someone to, to, to commit to you before they're ready to. And I'm not saying you should be passive in your search for a husband or wife. Obviously, take initiative, go on dates and use dating apps if you need to use dating apps, things like that. But at the same time, understand that God has his plan. God has his timing. And just trust that God will provide, right? You know, and the missionary, uh, the missionary Hudson Taylor, he said this, and I love this quote, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. There's a lot of things that we want in life. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, it, it's hard to be in that weight. When there's something we really want, it's something we feel like we deserve, it's something that we even feel like God has promised us, but it's just not there. And sometimes in those moments, we may be tempted when we see the temptations around us, the opportunities around us to say, you know what, I'll just settle for less. I'll settle for what the world is offering me. That's good enough. But during those times, I just urge you to wait because God has something better in mind. God's plan is always the best plan. Sometimes it takes us down difficult paths. Sometimes it stretches our faith to the limits. Sometimes we wind up in places that don't seem to make sense on the surface. Like Abram, living in this land, surrounded by wicked people without an offspring, holding on to this promise that he will be a great nation. But God's plan is always the best plan, and it's worth the wait. Take God's promise to uh, Abraham, for example. So God promised that he would be a great nation, that he would be blessed, that he would be a blessing to the whole world. This ultimately didn't even happen in his lifetime. And it happened also in a way that he never would have imagined. This happened sort of in a, in, in a spiritual sense that Abram, he didn't just become the father of a physical kingdom, of a people group, but he became the spiritual father of the church, of all people who would trust in Jesus, who later became the source of blessing to the whole world. Um, let's read Galatians 3, 7 to 9. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Do you see what this is saying? He's saying, this promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that all nations will be blessed through you, that was ultimately fulfilled not through the physical kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, but through the multicultural kingdom of God established by Jesus. God's plan all along was to proclaim the gospel to all nations, not just so that some people would experience some physical health, physical wealth, physical safety in an isolated land called Canaan, but so that all people would be restored in this kingdom of God, so that all people would, would receive the blessing of God through Jesus. And this is the ultimate blessing that we need to walk with God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, to have this beautiful, restored relationship with him, to delight in him and enjoy peace and joy. That was the blessing that God was talking about that he was going to commission to the whole world. And that was accomplished through the gospel of faith, first delivered to Abraham and now to us. And we 
are recipients of that blessing if we are in the church. Just like Abraham, we obtain this blessing not by making deals with the world, but by trusting that God has provided for us through Jesus. And just like Abraham, we also have a royal priest, a priestly king, who advocates and intercedes on our behalf, namely Jesus. Let's read Hebrews 7. Uh, Hebrews 7 is a long chapter. If you want to explore it, it talks about Melchizedek and it's pretty fascinating. But let's just read 25 to 27, okay? Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So just like Melchizedek interceded on Abraham's behalf, so now we have Jesus who intercedes on our behalf, right? For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. So typically, this is how priests work in the Bible, okay? When you want a blessing, you go to a priest, and then you give an offering to the priest, and then the priest takes that offering, and then the priest blesses you. So that's what happened with Abram and Melchizedek, right? Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. That's his offering. Melchizedek, he blesses Abraham, okay? But that's not what happened with Jesus. When you want a blessing from Jesus, you don't give Jesus an offering. Why? Because as Hebrews 7.27 says, he offered himself. Jesus offered himself. Jesus himself gave the offering, which was his own life on the cross. And this is the one thing that separates the Christian faith from all other systems, okay? Whether there are religious systems, secular systems, this is the one thing that separates Christianity from everything else. And every, the way the whole world works is you get blessings by trading for it. You get blessings by trading for it. This is how the king of Sodom was operating, right? He wanted to make a trade with Abram. He's like, hey, give me this people. I'll give you the stuff. That's what he's trying to do. And that's how Lot was op operating. You know what? I want safety. I want security. I want, I want abundance. And so I'm going to live. I'm going to sacrifice my, my spiritual purity in exchange for the stuff. That's how the whole world operates. We want blessing. So we give ourselves to get this blessing. But the gospel, the blessing that comes from Jesus comes at zero cost to you. And it comes at 100% cost, total cost to Jesus. The great high priest is also the Lamb of God. That's how the gospel works. The, Jesus, the great high priest, the one who was making the offering, also chooses to be the Lamb who was slain on the altar as the offering. Uh, in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, he gives Abram some bread and wine as a uh, sort of like, as a way to refresh him after his military campaign. And I think that's just such a beautiful a foreshadowing, right, of what Jesus did. At the Last Supper, Jesus also, he had bread and wine. And he said, this is not just random bread, random wine. He said, this represents me. Eat this bread. This is my body. And drink this cup. This represents the blood of the covenant that I'm shedding for you for the forgiveness of sins. And it's just such a beautiful reminder that Jesus, the great high priest, is also the Lamb of God. And so when we go to God, we don't go to God with this heart of trying to make a deal with God. We don't go to him thinking, you know what? 
I want you to bless me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray five times a day. Or I'm going to make sure my church attendance is perfect. I want to make sure I'm joining a serving team. I want to make sure I give a tenth of everything I have. And if I do those things, if I check those boxes, then you'll bless me. That's not how it works. How it works is you just say, I can't do it on my own. I'm not making any deals with you because I am totally unable to do this on my own, but I trust that Jesus did it on his own, that Jesus laid down his life for me so that I don't have to do a single thing at all. In a moment, we'll have some worship music. And during that time, you can line up on either aisle and take communion and remember that Jesus, the great high priest, is the Lamb of God. During this time, uh, I just want to encourage you Take a moment to reflect on the story of Abraham who trusted not in worldly powers, but trusted in God alone. And so I want to encourage you to ask, how can I trust in God today? It's a simple question. How can I trust in God today? Maybe you need to trust um, God with your finances. Maybe, I, I, I'll confess, I struggle with this, okay, with the money, the money thing. Maybe you got to confess I need, to tr- I need to trust in God with my finances. There are so many ways to make a quick buck. So many ways to accumulate wealth in a way that is morally hazy. But I just want to say, you know what? God will provide. And I need to trust you with my finances, God. Maybe you need to trust God with your family. Maybe your search for a husband or a wife isn't going the way you thought it would go. Maybe your parenting isn't going the way you thought it would go. Maybe your relationship with your mom or your dad isn't going the way you thought it would go. Maybe there are, you have sick family members not going the way you, you thought it would go. And you, you just got to go, you know what, God, I trust that you have my best interests in mind. God, I trust that you have a plan for me. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe the thing for you is you need to trust God for your spiritual salvation. You're like Lot, captive to sin. You've been making deals with the world your whole life, thinking if you just trade this for that, trade this for that, that's how you get your blessings. And maybe you're at a place where you go, you know what? I don't have anything left to trade. I don't have anything meaningful to trade. I just need to ask God to rescue me. Whatever it is, I just encourage you to spend some time reflecting on how you can be trusting in God and then come to the great high priest who is the Lamb of God. Uh, Please stand with me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this message of Jesus and how Jesus operates in a way that is totally unlike anything else in this world so that it's so mind-blowing, so hard to grasp because it's so unnatural. Our tendency is to want to get things by trading things for them, by making deals so that we can get things, thinking that we have things to offer. But Jesus, but, but, but God, when it comes to the most important things in life, our relationship with you, our ultimate security, our ultimate identity, our, our ultimate mission, all these things God, we recognize we don't have anything to offer. There's nothing in us that we can use to purchase these things. And so we thank you so much for Jesus who purchased all of these things, every spiritual blessing in heaven on our behalf through his blood. 
by offering his life to us, he purchased for us an eternal inheritance so that we have the opportunity to be a part of this great nation, this kingdom of God that you promised to Abraham. We are citizens of heaven. We are adopted as your children. We are your ambassadors. We are co-rulers and co-heirs of the kingdom, all because of what Jesus did. So God, I just pray that you help us to trust in him not just with our spiritual salvation, but with our whole lives. Every single thing that we want in life, may you help us to be content with our lot in life right now and to trust that you have our future and our best future at heart and that you will lead us there. Thank you so much for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.